You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 56. Today, we're asking the question, does goal-based regulation increase bureaucracy? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, what's today's question? David, we haven't done too many episodes so far digging into safety regulation. I think the only time we've really talked about regulators is episode 32, when we had a discussion about the role of a regulator. But our discussion that time was really about frontline inspectors in uh, China. So we haven't had sort of a broader talk about how safety regulation works or how effective it is. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. A little bit of background. There are some different theories about how regulation works. One of the ways of thinking about safety regulation is that it's ultimately all about decreasing the discretionary space in which organisations can act. So sometimes we're trying to positively encourage certain types of behaviour. Sometimes we're trying to create gateways using licences, certificates or other approvals. Sometimes we're punishing organisations who don't meet minimum standards. Sometimes we're trying to discourage or punish actively bad behaviours. But all of those ultimately you can think of as they create a space where there are fewer things that organisations can do. They've got less freedom so they're hopefully operating in a safer space. In many parts of the world, safety at work's been regulated for a very long time. In most places, more than 100 years, some places arguably 200, 300 years. And it's certainly consistently claimed by safety scientists as one of the important defences against organisational accidents. But outside of regulators and outside of academia, it seems like everyone is fairly hostile to the idea of safety regulation. In fact, even people who are highly promoting of safety work and safety activities still talk in a fairly derogatory way about regulators. No safety professional wants to be part of being basically a police force. No business owner wants to have expensive regulations. No worker wants to fill out endless paperwork. No one says to themselves, hey, we're going to have a great day at work today because the inspectors are coming. So there's been a lot of social and economic pressure towards deregulation, removal of red tape, simplification of legislation. Mostly deregulation comes in two forms. One of them is trying to reduce the direct cost of compliance by reducing the amount of administrative work that organisations have to do. And the other is to reduce the indirect cost of compliance by making regulations looser so that they don't unnecessarily restrict the space in which businesses can operate. So Drew, until maybe 40 years ago or so, much of safety regulation and regulation more broadly was very prescriptive and very rule-based. But since since then, we've got different styles of safety regulation that are or different models of safety regulation that are applied in, in different parts of the world. And I just want to talk about two approaches to safety regulation, um, those being sort of goal-based legislative frameworks and rule-based legislative frameworks, because that leads into what we want to talk about today in terms of deregulation and bureaucracy, because the idea of deregulation is about moving from prescriptive rule-based regimes into more 
goal and functional and performance-based regimes to enable more flexibility of compliance and therefore efficiency of compliance. So goal-based legislation, look, a lot of it emerged out of the Robins review into safety regulation in the early 1970s. And that review largely concluded that governments and regulators by extension are not necessarily best placed to set the specific rules for all safety hazards and that there might be better outcomes achieved if um, individual employers and their employees would work together to apply the limited resources that they've got to controlling the specific hazards in the specific context of their workplace. And I think idealistically, that sounds um, like a really good thing to do. So we develop these broad legal obligations and duties. For example, things like employers have an obligation to ensure health and safety, an obligation to identify and manage risks, and obligations to provide a safe system of work, And subsequently, this became the basis of safety regulation in the UK, in Australia, in New Zealand, in many other Commonwealth countries. And this is similar to regulated safety case regimes and where it's sort of the responsibility of the asset operators to demonstrate that their system is safe. And it's not the responsibility of regulators to make that, let's say, decision over safety, even though they do some level of approval. So the intention of this goal-based regulatory strategy is for organisations to understand their broad obligations, to adopt a risk-based safety management strategy, and to set their own safety management requirements inside their organisation. Drew, do you want to make any comments about goal-based legislative frameworks? David, I think the one thing I'd throw in there is that even though we talk very broadly about setting goals and setting standards, in practice, goal-based regulation tends to come down to two specific instruments. One of them is the safety case, which tends to be used for large items of planned or equipment or installations. And the other is the safety management system, which tends to be used for ongoing operations. And so when we talk about setting goals, very often that's just code for saying that we're going to regulate the safety case or the safety management system instead of regulating the work directly. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think we'll talk a bit more about safety management systems because the research we're going to talk about today definitely came at it through that through that lens of external regulation, internal safety management system. The other legislative framework is is rule-based legislation. And this, I suppose, as opposed to goal-based legislation is where the strategy for governments and regulators is to provide a very large and specific volumes of rules for organisations to follow. And this is a little bit more the approach taken in the United States and historically also many of the countries that make up the European Union. And this squarely places the regulator front and centre of determining what is safe and what is not safe for organisations in certain given situations. And the intention of this regulatory strategy is for organisations to clearly know and follow all of the rules and and have this compliance-based safety management strategy. And so the I don't think it's a matter, Drew, of simply asking the question of which model is better because the reality is no regulatory model is one or the other. They're all a hybrid of both. So even in a goal-based regulatory regime, there's a lot of very specific rules. And even in a rule-based legislative regime, there's also some quite broad obligations. Um, But I think the question that we've got for today is, as we deregulate, as we move away from from regulators prescribing lots and lots of rules and requirements, what do organisations do with these broad obligations? And that's really the, the topic for today. And David, I think we can see in the regulations a lot of the very awkward and abrupt interfaces between the two styles of regulation. Uh, So one example is the Model Workplace Health and Safety Act in Australia is mostly goal-based. 
but then it will suddenly switch to talking about specific high-risk activities. And for those activities, it will suddenly start talking about things like heights of 1.8 metres and particular activities like safe work method statements. And so you see within the one set of regulations this abrupt interface between broadly setting goals and then being concerned that broadly setting goals is not enough, that we need to lay down very specific rules and requirements in certain situations. And I think, Drew, this is something that I've wondered about for a while. So before we get into the, into the, because I think the idealistic view that I've had is goal-based is maybe a preferable approach because idealistically, if you've got organizations understanding their risks and focusing their resources, then you are going to have very specific, effective outcomes for safety. Conversely, though, um, I've also seen in practice how when organizations left to their own devices, they somewhat make a meal of this most of the time. So I've sort of wondered whether goal-based legislation helps or hinders safety, safe, because I think the question then becomes of organizations, if you've just got this general obligation to ensure health and safety, companies really don't know where the bar is. They have no idea who's going to be the judge and what standard they're going to judge them by. So if I'm going to be seen to be failed, if I've got incidents, I've got to focus on my slips, trips and falls, I've got to spend a lot of resource on signage on my stairs and office footwear guidelines and non-slip flooring. And we just see this kind of never ending, I suppose, uneasiness from an organization to know how much is enough um, and how are they going to be judged. And I think that while real, rule-based would make life simpler and let them sort of get on with, with doing their work, I've also seen in rule-based regimes that when governments become, when sorry, when companies become compliant, like in the US, if a company has an, is, has an OSHA star rating, then they believe that they've met the hurdle. So it's very hard to influence that organization to do more because they've got this big tick of approval from the regulator. So I kind of, I'm kind of torn, Drew, before we talk about the research, I'm kind of torn between thinking that goal-based is better, but then seeing it in practice, but then thinking rule-based might be better, but then seeing a lowering of kind of that continual improvement mindset. David, I wonder if this is because you and I grew up in slightly different safety roles. You're coming mainly from an operational background where you've seen some of the problems of prescriptive regulation and you dream of a better goal-based environment and are just worried that that dream might not be true. Whereas I come from much more of a design background, which has always been much more goal-oriented. And my experience has been that very often goal-based approaches let people spend a heap of work justifying why what they're already doing is good enough. And they spend all of that time on the justification, not on the safety improvement. And I dream of a world in which we could have clearer requirements and more objective standards for what's safe and not safe so that we could continuously lift our game. But I think one of the big challenges that goal-based regulation has to meet is that you can't just have goal-based. You can't just have goals. You have to have an acceptable means for demonstrating that, that those goals are met. And that's where I get most sceptical, because there's a bit of a paradox that you're not actually leaving industry free to meet the goal. If you're placing requirements on what would be good enough to satisfy the regulator. So a classic example is you can't just set a risk target. You have to also say what is an acceptable analysis method for proving that someone's met the risk target. And if you're only going to accept a fault tree, then suddenly you've gone from just setting the target to being very prescriptive about the safety methods that someone needs to apply. If we're just going to say, you know, you just have to demonstrate that you're safe, but the only thing we're going to accept is an LTI, then suddenly you're being very prescriptive about what sort of data the organisation has to collect to manage safety. 
and I think as we go through this episode, Drew, we'll understand the role of um, organizations and people within them, as well as the role of regulators and others is complex and, and hard. And, and so we've had a fair lead in there to this question of regulation. But I think, as you said, Drew, we haven't really talked about regulation. So it's good to, for listeners to understand that there's different models of regulation and there's different advantages and disadvantages. And it's like everything else in safety, quite complex when it hits real people in real organizations. So Drew, we might move into the paper. And so the title of the paper is How Deregulation Can Become Overregulation, An Empirical Study into the Growth of Internal Bureaucracy When Governments Take a Step Back. So you probably like this. The title says kind of exactly what, um, what it was and what the outcome was. Published in Safety Science in 2020, the authors are Christine Storkerson, Trine Thordvoldson, Tron Konsevik, and Sydney Decker. So the first three authors are researchers from NTNU, Sintef, and the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, all in Norway. And I'm sure many of our listeners would know Sydney from Griffith University and Delft. So, Drew, the paper makes some initial observations about um, deregulation and bureaucracy. Do you want to talk a little bit about those sort of general context setting points? Sure. Most of these are things that we've already touched on, um, which is that there has been pretty much around the world a progressive stepping back of governments from regulating industry. Uh, that's particularly happening in uh, Europe and England and sort of England-inspired uh, ex-Commonwealth and ex-Commonwealth countries. Some people would label that as part of a neoliberalism trend uh, where we're uh, sort of re reducing formal government in place of government by big business. But at the same time as we have this apparent deregulation, we've still got all of this research pointing out problems related to bureaucracy, over-proceduralization, uh, our own work on safety clutter, work about bureaucracy, centralization, safety work that becomes separate from the safety of work, you increasing work as done separate from work as imagined. And so that appears to be two different trends pointing in different directions. How come we're seeing deregulation on the one side and on the other side, an increase in all of those evils that we would normally blame on excessive regulation? So we've got an apparent trend that this deregulation is at the very least correlating, but possibly causing internal overregulation. At the very least, we have a trend that External regulation is decreasing, internal regulation is increasing, and we have a need to explain that trend. And I think, Drew, what, what we've sort of introduced there is that this, um, this paradox between when governments try to make things simpler, let's just, say, let's just say it like this, when governments try to make things simpler and clearer for business, business makes things more complicated and harder for itself. So why does that happen? And, and while we can see that in these organisational science and safety science trends, um, the authors of, of this study suggest that there's very few empirical studies that try to explore this effect and try to explain it. So let's talk about the research that was done um, underneath this study. So the researchers analysed Norwegian coastal cargo and fish farming industries. So obviously, whatever country you're in, you've got different industries that are that are that are large and available to to researchers, and um, and those were two industries that were accessible by these researchers, but. These industries were also selected quite strategically because operations happen offshore in coastal waters, whether it's salmon farms or whether it's coastal cargo ships. And it's far from the offices of the central management team of the company. It's far from the safety department. It's far from the offices of the regulators. And so, and also while these industries share similar safety management regulations, they've got very different organizational structures and business models. So on one hand, you've got quite a traditional and 
structured uh, cargo business and you've got more of a primary industry type of fish farming business. So really great, great cases to go and explore this. And in both of these industries, there was a shift towards goal-based regulation in the late 1990s. So we had this change in regulation that was long ago that the changes have been fully absorbed by the industry, but recent enough that there are plenty of people around who remember what it was like previously and who experienced the change. So we've got one of these naturally occurring situations where we can measure the effect of something by the changes that have happened. So 45 interviews, in-depth interviews, semi-structured, one to two hours in length. 35 of these interviews with, were, were with Norwegian fish farmers and 10 of these interviews were with ships navigators. So that's a fairly large sample for qualitative interviews, like 45 to 90 hours of transcribed qualitative data. That's you know, that's, that's a lot of analysis that needs to go in, into that. And the analysis method they cho chose was like a pattern analysis method, which we've also talked about in terms of progressive comparison. So just for our, our listeners, you pick up the first interview and you read it and you work out what the important parts are. And then you pick up the second interview and you, you see if some of the same important parts or what new important things come up and you keep going forward and back, forward and back, forward and back until you feel like you know what all of the themes and, and trends are in, in all of those individual transcripts. So David, there's probably a couple of things that are worth pointing out here. One of them is that even though they didn't make the claim in the paper, I suspect that a lot of what they're talking about here extends beyond just this particular set of interviews. David, you and I are both fairly familiar with these researchers' work. And this particular paper comes at the end of a long project stretching from the start of the first author's PhD and into her postdoc work. You know, even though this particular study reports on these particular interviews, it's informed really by quite a long-term combination of ethnography and other qualitative research methods for Norwegian coastal industries. The, the second important point, I think, is that in this particular case, they weren't actually interviewing people neutrally about regulation. They were specifically asking questions about over-regulation. So you know, they're asking things like how and why people feel over-regulated and where that's coming from. They weren't like setting out to find people who were happy with regulation. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that this is a paper about over-regulation. And to that extent, we've got to be careful that they can't really claim that the results show that there is over-regulation because they weren't open to the... They weren't looking for the alternative. It's about how and why things are the way they are. Um, but even within that scope, it's interesting that there was really only one set of people that they interviewed, one fish farming company, who had nice things to say about regulation. Yeah, and I think also that one company, and we'll come back to in the practical takeaways, that within this sample, there was one company that seemed to be have a simple system and and didn't seem to have much to add or much to complain about in way of over-regulation. So we'll, we'll talk about that one fish farming company at the end. So the results, Drew, there's there's sort of three areas of results that I, that I think we should talk about first. And, and these are sort of the results of the thematic analysis of all that data. The, the, first, the first finding, if you like, empirical finding is that over-regulation occurs because practical work is very demanding to verify. So traditionally, people were saying that we used to be more focused on the job, like navigating our ship and, and, um, and raising our fish. But increasingly, our day-to-day -day work needs to be made accountable and transparent. So our local situation of doing the work has changed to make sure that we always do the work in a way that is auditable or checkable. And this, and this is this rise in standardization. So it's actually about helping companies know that things are being done as opposed to potentially helping the person doing the work to actually get the things done. 
This one shouldn't really come as any surprise. This is quite an old idea. One of the places where I think it's expressed most clearly, and this is a really good read that I'd recommend that safety practitioners have a look at, is a book called Seeing Like a State by James Scott, which is about the need to make day-to-day operations legible in order for companies or states to manage them in a way that seems scientific. And you could just imagine that, you know, when you're dealing with something like a fish farm, you've got a standard fish and you've got a standard model for how fast a fish grows and how many fish you can put in a pen and exactly what combinations of nutrients are going to optimize the speed at which the fish grows and puts on mass and exactly what the right time is to kill the fish and to send it off to market so you get maximum return. And if you're seeing the world like that, it makes total sense that you want to do the same thing to things like safety activities, is you want to make them standardised, you want to make them understandable, you want to have management tables that you can predict what's going to happen, what's the right number of inspections, what's the right number of audits, what's the right amount of training in order to optimise the safety of your operations. And so, Drew, I think that's really, really helpful reflection. We might put that reference to that book in the show notes as well. The second theme that came out of the analysis was that overregulation is because of liability management and management insecurity. So this expectation by society of safety is a reason that creates this overregulation. So managers have this expectation of society. There's insurers, there's lawyers, there's regulators, there's auditors. And also these companies get inspired by looking to other aviations like, sorry, other industries like aviation and, and oil and gas and go look at how they operate. And just because we're a fish farm, society still expects us to be just as safe as as those sorts of industries and look at what they're doing. There was a few other comments in in that theme around um, companies and managers trying to avoid blame and so trying to discharge their accountability through a whole lot of routines like workers doing things so that managers could review things, so they could sign off things, so they could get reports, go to meetings and conduct inspections. So a big, a big theme about liability management and management insecurity. Drew, the first discussion that I'm interested in your point is I couldn't work out from the interviews whether they actually interviewed any managers or whether it was just the workforce. So I suppose I'd be a little bit less um, confident in this theme if they didn't actually get a chance to speak to managers as well. Yeah, I'm a little bit uncertain there, David. I know that when we talk about sort of coastal vessels, that we're talking about very small crews. So in some of their previous work, they drew a distinction between the work of officers on board ships Um, But I'm really not sure whether the fact that they interviewed navigators means that they're sort of people in pseudo-management positions or whether they're really talking about sort of essentially frontline workers on these vessels. And I I don't know enough about the industries they're talking about to get a sense of that. Maybe take as a slight grain of salt for the research because you, you and I have both been very clear before that we shouldn't draw conclusions about why managers do what they're doing unless we've directly interviewed the managers. So the third idea is this idea of um, over-regulation because of auditor expectations. So you mentioned earlier, Drew, the, the way that goal-based regulation works generally is through either safety cases or safety management systems. And the authors refer to these as like, rather than goal-based regulation, they talk about functional regulation and they talk about the need for the company to have a safety management system. And we know, at least for the coastal shipping industry, that the ISM code specifies sort of for the entire maritime industry specifies safety management system requirements. And so these companies know that they're going to be audited and they, they know the auditor's expectations. So they have this desire for safety management systems that will satisfy what the auditor is looking for. And in this case, sometimes bigger is better. 
because if they can have a system that can satisfy every possible request of an auditor or a regulator, then they're going to be less likely to have problems when it comes to the auditor. And I think consistent with our safety clutter work, Drew, they've said that inserting a new procedure is a really good way to close every auditor action item, just create a new procedure for that particular issue. And interestingly, that none of the 45 people involved believe that auditing improves safety, So, which is a really interesting finding when we think about the safety of work. Mm. So I think it's a little bit telling who the authors cite in this particular case. So I've just actually had a look. I was checking to see if they cited us because in that middle one, there seems to be a lot of stuff that is very reminiscent of the uh, safety work stuff that we did. And they, they don't, in fact, cite our either our, of our safety work papers, but they do cite the safety clutter paper. And then there's a whole string of citations to an author called Michael Power. I think the best way I can explain this is just to read off the titles of Michael Power's papers and books that they cite. Uh, we have in 1994, The Audit Explosion. In 1999, The Audit Society, Rituals of Verification. In 2004, The Risk Management of Everything, Rethinking the Politics of Uncertainty. And in 2007, Organised Uncertainty, Designing a World of Risk Management. So I think this really speaks to at least the lens which the authors in, put over the data. And I think their data honestly supports this. The idea that these audits are really driving the work because the audits are a very useful tool for management to put some sort of certainty and closure around a lot of uncertainties. And that's you know, a central theme of Michael Power's work, that society has all of these demands of management, which are really hard for management to meet, particularly in this sort of case where management is sitting in head office and the work is happening offshore where management can't directly see the work, management can't directly control the work. How do they create that uncertainty? They create that, sorry, how do they create certainty? They create certainty through audits. But those audits then take on a life of their own, creating all of this additional stuff, this imposition for the workers that goes well beyond just being safe. It becomes, what can we do to satisfy the auditors that we're safe? Yeah, and I think, Drew, that's because the audit, the successful completion of an audit is the license for the business to operate. So in this paper, it almost became like um, it was nothing about safety anymore. It was about actually keeping a job and keeping in business. So it was almost uh, not only just demonstrating safety, but also continuing operations. We need to regulate because practical work is demanding to verify. We need to regulate because of to protect the liabilities of the company and management. And we also need to regulate because of auditor expectations and to basically continue our operations because we're, we're, we're being audited and, and that becomes the pseudo-regulation, the passing of that audit. So why does it, this happen? The authors suggest that this that what you've got is these forces where you've got a deregulation, for, deregulation going on, but it's meeting these um, underlying market bureaucracy and control of work forces. Even though governments are stepping back from being very prescriptive about requirements, Society already has a, a long-held view of how organisations should operate. And so when these uh, regulators pull back, companies need to make themselves checkable and auditable and transparent. So therefore, these companies become very open to bureaucratic and market influences on how they do their safety management systems. And I think um, some of our listeners might be familiar that Deloitte Access Economics did a report in 2014 and found that something like 90% of all compliance requirements inside organizations are self-imposed and only something like 10% come from direct compliance with regulatory requirements. And I think in safety, an example of this we see is if you ask the question of 
maybe people in your organization, what are the things in our safety management system that we actually have to do because of a regular regulated requirement? There's you'd actually be surprised that there's very few things. Like there's no requirement to investigate incidents. There's no express requirement to have, unless you're in a certain type of facility, to have an evacuation plan or so on. So I think the the vagueness of this regulation creates the opportunity for the market to step in. And and I think that's what we're seeing in some of this over-regulation of companies that is self-imposed. I find it really fascinating, David. Neoliberalism is one of those terms, a bit like you know, social justice warrior, that the only people who use the term are the people who disagree with the underlying philosophy. So you get a lot of left-wing academics who are very critical of neoliberalism and who talk about this myth that if governments step back, then big business and the market will regulate themselves. But actually, that's exactly what we're seeing here, is that when government steps back, market forces do cause big business to regulate themselves. You know, the only thing that we should be really sceptical about is whether this is, in fact, a good solution to the problem, whether these, this you know, self-regulation, because self-regulation is absolutely happening. You know, we let business go free. Business doesn't suddenly turn to corruption. Business doesn't suddenly turn to killing off all of their workers. Business turns to auditors and consultants to reinvent the regulator because that's what society demands in order for them to keep operating. And I think, Drew, maybe maybe there's an underlying question here. Maybe just thinking, listening to you now, maybe we're asking the wrong question. And and I think what we're saying is it may lead to overregulation, but and and that's what it does, and that's that might be a good thing. But I think the the next important question to ask is: Are we regulating safety work or regulating the safety of work? And I think this research sort of suggests that yes. Um, when governments take, take, take a step back, yes, companies will step in. Yes, they will regulate. But there's nothing in this research to suggest that the regulation that the company does is any better than the regulation that the regulator does because they're not actually about the safety of work. They're still looking outside about transparency and auditability and all of those normal things that an external regulator would be trying to deliver on. So they're not actually replacing that external regulation of safety work with internal regulation of the safety of work, if that's a useful statement to make. David, I think there are hints that it's even stronger than that, that previously the regulator was regulating some things which were directly related to the safety of work, because the regulator was getting down in the weeds and micromanaging some operational issues for better or worse. And so what we're seeing is a shift from regulation of work to regulation of the safety of work. But I think it is a genuinely open question whether that's a good or bad thing. Certainly we see in this paper lots of people dissatisfied with it, but people being dissatisfied with regulation doesn't mean the regulation's not working. It could in fact mean that the regulation is working really, really well, and that's what people don't like. So I think we should need to be a little bit careful of drawing conclusions about what works and doesn't work, but we should certainly be able to draw conclusions here that trying to cut red tape doesn't cut red tape, it just changes the nature of the tape and who is applying it. So, Drew, that's a good segue to the practical implications. So, the first one that we had here was um, safety work versus the safety of work. I think there's a there's a conclusion in the paper that said the fish farmers and the navigators um, in this study they describe safety management in terms of accountability and documentation and audits. They don't describe safety management in terms of practical goals, work, risk, or safety. And so, the fear here is that depending on how your safety management systems are set up and how you talk about safety in your organisation, when you ask people how do we manage safety? If they talk about, you know, responsibilities and documentation and audits and things like that, it's probably an indication to you that they've kind of been indoctrinated into this sort of regulated mindset. 
Whereas what you're looking for, I think you say, how do we manage safety? I think you're looking for your people to answer in terms of the practical things they do you know, in in individual tasks to, to keep themselves safe. So look out for those conditioned responses and it might give you a sense that your organized your safety management system is regulating safety work rather than the safety of work. And I think we should certainly be very careful looking for when we're asking people to do things that point away from the point of risk. So all of these are activities that take an existing set of practices, a set of existing equipment, and they ask people to do extra work to describe that to us to demonstrate that to us to pass the audit, rather than asking people to improve their behaviour, improve their conditions of work, improve their operations. And so Drew, the second one, I was going to say a practical takeaway is don't blame the regulators. Like you say, if you remove red tape, maybe the organisation replaces it with orange tape or something or, or yellow safety yellow tape. And we talked about risk homeostasis in a previous episode, and you were, you were fairly critical of that as, a, as, a, as an idea around risk, Drew. So I, this paper, when I read in this paper, I thought, oh, here's a good one to throw it, Drew in the podcast, it said, so the authors conclude that it might not be far-fetched to discuss some form of a rule homeostasis that deregulation will lead to at least as many rules as other types of regulation. And David, I think you know what my likely response here is, that if you're going to posit some sort of homeostasis, you have to have some mechanism that's actually leading to a fixed point. I think what we're actually seeing here is an equilibrium, which is that there are forces pushing in both directions. And the regulator is not the only force that's pushing in favour of more rules. So we don't necessarily have like a stable fixed point, but we do have forces that are pushing to remove rules, but equally forces that are pushing back to exert rules. And when one force becomes too successful, the other force starts to gain more ground. And the way I think I would phrase it is that if the regulator doesn't exist, then we'd need to invent a regulator anyway. I've had a little bit of experience. I think I was involved in early Northern Australia the coal seam gas industry and onshore regulation. And, and there wasn't a lot of regulation for the onshore oil and gas industry in that particular jurisdiction. But all of the large companies were in there doing their doing their work and drilling for for hydrocarbons. And there was no there was no rules. There was no well construction standards, but this was being done on on private land and it was being done in communities that were were cautious about this type of activity in this part of the world. And so industry got together and designed its own well construction standards, which actually later became adopted by the regulator. But it was industry that set the early rules and all self-signed up to um, doing things in a certain way for auditability, for transparency, for external confidence. So in some ways, Drew, I think does that that may be an example of where it was an activity that needed regulation and there was no regulator, so industry regulated it itself. I think we've seen the same thing more explicitly in burgeoning space industries in Australia and New Zealand, where we've had these brand new companies looking to do new activities, and they're operating in a, in a field of real legal uncertainty. And so it's been the industries as much as society and the government that's been saying, hey, we need some sort of regulator so that there's someone who can tell us that we're doing the right thing, who can put some sort of government license over what we're doing. So similar case of if we're not regulated, then we're going to actually go out and seek a regulator so that we can have that social stamp of approval and that certainty over our activities. So the third practical takeaway is about how organisations go about translating regulatory goals, objectives into practices in their organisation. So turning the paper talked about turning simple regulations into very detailed, cumbersome procedures inside an organisation, creating an ever-increasing distance between um, work as done and work as imagined. And I, I thought about contractor management within companies because I think 
the regulatory requirements are somewhat simple in terms of work engage capable contractors and just make sure they're capable to do what you want them to do. Companies turn these into, you know, very elaborate contractor management requirements and long activities that happen at multiple stages during the process and lots of paperwork and lots of things. And, and none of that's actually, it's kind of like this elaborate way of achieving, achieving this goal. And I wonder sometimes um, whether it's because companies have the resources, they have the big departments, they have the big paying salaries to get, you know, the people who can have the time and space to think about this a lot. And we have these really huge safety management systems in our organization that are meant to be delivering on, you know, when you look at it, some quite simple goals and objectives in regulation. David, you're not a lawyer and I'm not a lawyer, but I think we both know a number of legal commentators in the safety field who argue that, in fact, companies do too much to manage subcontractors, that they go beyond their legal obligations and in doing so actually expose themselves to additional legal liability. So that, I think that's a clear example of where we can't blame the regulator for what's happening here. That you know, the regulator's given people the freedom, the regulators actually absolve people from responsibility, but people create internal rules that then reclaim that responsibility in order to recapture the certainty around what's happening. So I think you just, if and, and I think this is a good follow-on from that about... Um, Again, remember the one fish farming company that we mentioned earlier. So if we think about practical takeaways being, remember it's about the safety of work. Um, don't blame the regulators. You know, Pay attention to how you're translating these regulatory goals into your organisational practices. Because this one fish farming company in the study was part of the same regulatory regime as all of the others, but had a very simple system, nothing to say about over-regulation and compared with its, its peers in industry. So the takeaway here is that your company doesn't, doesn't need to swim with the pack Although, you know, our listeners should know that there's always going to be a lot of peer pressure for it to do so. David, my next takeaway, I think, is a direct follow-on from that one, which is that a lot of regulation, I think, is genuinely written trying to give companies freedom in how they go about complying. And I certainly know regulators who are frustrated that they know how much work has gone into trying to simplify regulation, that industry then overcomplicates again and then blames the regulator for the overcomplication. And what I suspect is happening is that often we choose the easiest path in the short term and we lock ourselves into arrangements which are cheap to implement but expensive to operate. So a good example of that is that we will very often you know, voluntarily adopt a standard for safety management systems because getting a standard and having us audited against that standard gives us a really quick short-term way to demonstrate that we're compliant with the regulation that we're meeting our acceptable level of safety management. But once we've done that, we've locked ourselves into being audited every year against that standard. We know that those audits are going to have findings that there's going to be a steady growth of safety clutter. And so what seems to be a cheap solution, implement the system, get the system audited, becomes a very, very expensive solution having to live with this burdensome safety management system. So Drew, things I'd like to know from our listeners, look, this is our first episode on regulation. And so we've tried to do a bit of a regulatory overview and then and then look at this one study. I'd like to know our listeners' experiences with the, I suppose, things that they've done to look at the legislation and think about what they're doing in terms of their internal company practices. Because I think, I'm not sure how deliberate we are when we actually, I think there's this lot of pressure in, in, in safety professional roles to not be seen to be someone that's following what's in the regulation to actually just be doing all of these best practices and and all these big systems in our in our companies. So anyone who's done an exercise of actually trying to reverse engineer what they're doing to what they actually need to be doing, I, I'd love to hear your experience with that. So Drew, 
Our question for this week was, uh, does goal-based regulation increase bureaucracy? Uh, so I'm not going to answer that one in a single sentence, David. I think the answer is that there are definitely mechanisms where decreasing the amount of prescriptive regulation increases the amount of self-imposed bureaucracy. So we can see that as external regulation decreases, internal regulation increases, which includes replacing regulation with other external parties like auditors and assessors. I don't think we can go so far as to answer the question of whether the overall change is positive or negative, or even whether there's a net effect, whether the total amount of regulation we end up with afterwards is more or less. So thanks, Drew. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join in the comments on this episode on LinkedIn or send any questions or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com.